Good morning. Morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for an opportunity to come and study, and we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, and draw our hearts together in unity with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to welcome visitors. I see a lot of visitors here today. I got to meet a few before class from, from Talking Rock, Georgia, um, from Minnesota, from North Dakota. Um, I didn't get to, to meet everybody you guys are from. Michigan. Michigan. So welcome all of our visitors today. We are doing lesson number nine in the quarterly, uh, Oneness in Christ, and the title is The Most Convincing Proof. And the first paragraph reads, Last week we studied how unity is made visible through a common message centered on Jesus as Savior and on the truths of Scripture to be emphasized in the time of the end. We are who we are because of the message that God has given us and the calling we have to spread it to the world. As I read this, there were three elements that were emphasized here. Jesus as Savior, truth and scripture, end time presentation. Don't most Christians believe Jesus is Savior, truth is found in scripture, and we're living in the end time? I I didn't find that significantly distinct. Hmm. Do you believe there is a special message, though, for this time in human history? And how would you describe the message that God has for his people to take to the world at this time in human history. Everlasting gospel. Everlasting gospel. Love. Love. Character of God. Character of God. See, you guys are all saying the same thing. So I think Christ Object Lessons 415, see if you agree with this perspective. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message about God, excuse me, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Do you agree? Do you think there's something else that needs to be given? Or every other truth, every other doctrine, every other point that you want to make at this time in history in some way has to illuminate our knowledge of God and his character. Well, I'm going to read to you now the three angels' messages and see if you hear in the three angels' messages what we just read, and that was from Christ's Object Lessons 4.15, about the, the final message of mercy, the truth about God's character of love. See if you hear it here. This is Revelation 14, 6 through 12 from the New Revised Standard Version. Then I saw another angel fly in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and spring of water. Then another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, those who worship the beast in his image and receive the mark on their forehead and on their hands. They will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and there will be no rest or day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith in Je- of Jesus. Did you hear the same description about love and the character of love? Dark speech. I do now. 
Or, or was it harder to hear there? Harder to hear, yeah. So the question, when you read Scripture, you know, the question I've been kind of putting to people for the last, what, five, six years now, is what law lens are you hearing through? What law lens are you reading through? You're hearing the Revelation text through the preconceived idea, the assumed premise that God's law functions like human law, a system of rules that require the rule maker to oversee breaks and then inflict punishment. Is that how you read it? Or do you read it through the lens of creator who builds reality? His laws are the laws upon which reality function. Because depending on which law lens you have, when you go to the text... And I think this message in history is the, is the message calling people back to see God as creator, to see him as builder of reality, and then go back and take all the things you believe to be true and run them through again and reprocess them through the view of God as creator and his law's design law. So I'll read those same verses from the remedy, and, which does that, and see what you think. Then I saw another messenger flying in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone living on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear, resounding voice, Be in awe of God and glorify Him by living His methods of love, because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who made the heavens and earth, the sea, and spring of waters, all of which operate upon His law of love. A second messenger followed the first, proclaiming throughout the world, don't trust Babylon the Great, a symbolic description of religions that misrepresent God, as it has fallen into the lies about God and intoxicates the world with its pagan views of God, maddening the people with its adulterous ideas that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. A third messenger followed the first two and proclaimed in a voice, that was heard throughout the world. If anyone gives worth and honor to the beastly system of coercion by choosing the methods of the beast and thus marking themselves as loyal in heart by embracing the character of the beast or marking themselves as loyal indeed by practicing the methods of the beast, they will reap the full fury of unremedied sin when God no longer shields them from their destructive choice. They will experience unmeasurable torment of mind and burning anguish of heart when they stand in God's fiery presence and are bathed in the unquenchable fires of truth and love, all in the very presence of Jesus and the holy angels. The memory of their suffering and the lesson of their self-destructive choice will never be forgotten throughout all eternity. There will be no peace of mind, day or night, for those who prefer the methods of the beast and model after him, or for any who choose to mark themselves as followers of the beast. This requires patient endurance on part of the healed who live God's methods of love and remain true to Jesus. Do you hear the design law of you through that? And how suddenly, wow, God is still love even in that message. God is not the one to be feared. The typical way of hearing the three angels' messages is it's time for God to have a tribunal and he's going to look over everything you've ever done and if you haven't had the proper legal accounting and you've forgotten some way to confess the sin, then he's going to have to torture you and it's a very terrible time, so you better live in fear. Can the truth that Jesus is our Savior be presented in a way that rather than uniting, and our lesson is about uniting, Rather than uniting, the way it's presented divides. How can that be? How can it be presenting Jesus as our Savior could cause division? Well, for those of you familiar with the seven levels of moral decision-making, when we operate at level four, 
which is law and order, imperial law, rules-oriented, then security is found in proper definitions, doctrines, right ideas, rather than right character and right methods. Once you move above level four, level five and above, it becomes unity is about right motives, right character, right methods. Level four and below, it's about the right definitions and the right rules and the right interpretations. And therefore, the level four thinking leads to missing what I call missing the forest for the trees. In this case, missing actual salvation, the restoration of Christ's likeness within, writing the law in the heart and mind, being recreated in the inner man, missing that for ensuring you have the right doctrinal definitions. That's where our security is found, the right rule keeping. This false view of right rule keeping You must worship on the right day, be baptized in the right way, dress in the right clothes, uh, eat the right foods. Leads to the ends justifying the means approach. The ends justify the means mentality. We must ensure that we are united in the right doctrines and thus we must set up compliance committees. Seriously. The ends justify the means. We must be united. We must police thoughts of people. We must ensure that if somebody has a thought and a belief within our organization that's different than ours, they need to be disciplined until the point that they confess that they were wrong or put out. Spraying out a net and swallowing the camel. Coercive pressure is brought to bear, threatening one's livelihood. You will lose your job. You will be no longer employed by the organization. No one can buy or sell. Save him who has the mark. Fails to realize how reality actually works. In fact, I think I'm going to jump into Friday's lesson, I, uh, and we'll have to come back to this point, but I'm going to jump into Friday's lesson because uh, there's a quote there I want to share with you, and I, I don't want to leave it to the end if I don't get to it. it. Because in Friday's lesson, if you jump to Friday's lesson on this very point, it talks about how God leads his people through three avenues. They use revelation, as in God appearing to Cornelius in a dream or, or so forth, got direct revelation from God, scripture, or consensus of, of the people. Consensus. <laughs> That's what they used. And I really wanted to question this idea of consensus, this idea of consensus, because this is exactly... What's happening with compliance committees, with groups of ecclesiastical, those in ecclesiastical authority getting together, having a discussion, coming to a consensus, passing. This is level four thinking. Can you think about the Sanhedrin when they were debating what they should do with Christ? Did they come to a consensus? They did. It's true two of them weren't there probably. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were probably not there. But the other 70 or so were there. And they came to a consensus. Was that consensus being led by the Holy Spirit? Was it how God was leading at that moment? Should consensus of church leadership, even in a general conference council, overrule an individual member's conscience and decision-making? So during the Reformation, the Reformers took this position because the church position was... Okay, you've brought up issues, we've debated them, we've studied them, and now we have a leadership consensus, and you should comply. The church, in its ruling authority, has ruled this view is wrong, and therefore you should comply. Do you hear the same mentality coming out of the GC right now? Yes. 
Yes. Well, here's what the reformer's position was. As a quote, let us reject this decree. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. Amen. That's the reformers. But then I wanted to share this quotation with you from one of the founders of the SD Church, found in, it's from Ellen White, found in Special Testimonies to Our Ministers. Sometimes she writes from personal wisdom, and sometimes she writes as if the Holy Spirit has given her special insights. God has revealed something to her. And this is how she writes here. I have been shown, meaning God has revealed something in her mind. This is how she's viewing it. I have been shown that there is one practice which those in responsible places should avoid. For it is detrimental to the work of God. Men in position should not lord it over God's heritage and command everything around them. Too many have marked out a prescribed line which they wish others to follow in the work. Workers have tried to do this with blind faith, without exercising their own judgment upon the matters which they had in hand. If those who were placed as directors were not present, they have followed their implicit directions just the same. But in the name of Christ, I would entreat you to stop this work. Give men a chance to exercise their individual judgment. Men who follow the leading of another and are willing that another should think for them are, excuse me, and are unwilling that another should think uh, are unfit to, to be entrusted with responsibility. Our leading men are remiss in this matter. God has not given us, excuse me, God has not given to special ones all the brain power there is in the world. Men in responsible positions should credit, credit others with some sense, with some ability of judgment and foresight, and look upon them as capable of doing a work committed to their hands. Our leading brethren have made a great mistake in marking out all the directions. Leading men should place responsibilities upon others, allow them to, to plan and devise and execute. Do not take away the work because you think the brethren are making a mistake. May God pity the cause when one man's mind and one man's plan is followed without question. God would not be honored should such a state of things exist. All our workers must have room to exercise their own judgment and discretion. She's brilliant. What are we saying here all the time? Am I to do your thinking for you? No, it's a foundational principle of Come and Reason Ministries that I am not your mind for you. That every one of you have your own identity, your own individuality, your own capacity to think and reason. And, and my goal is to motivate you, to stimulate you, to present you concepts, ideas, to, to, to hopefully excite you to exercise those capacities to reason and think for yourself. Yes? Back with the Pharisees in Christ, though, uh, I see that very much they were fear-based thinking. They were taking acts of protectionism versus being open to truths and to open their minds to, to possible further truth in what they, they held. And so often the reformers along the way, similar experiences of truth avoidance. Now, now so, so you, I, I agree with you. The, the people who are resistant to, to truth are almost always motivated by fear mm-hmm. and or selfishness, which kind of go hand in hand. The reformers, when the reformers were bringing forth their insights, their wisdom, their perspectives, was it their goal to, to work against the church? Were they against the church? Or were they for the church? Was it their goal to start new organizations and new denominations? No, they're called reformers. They're reformers. No, they simply wanted to help elevate the church to higher ordered living and experiencing in God's cause. I want to say this class is not against any church or any group. We're not. 
We want to see people come to the fullness of what Christ has promised us. That's all. So, one of the reasons then we're talking... Another hand somewhere? Yes. I think you have to be careful how you implement this concept and what you had said in a few in a bit prior. Because what if the independent thoughts are destructive to... Oh, well, let's hold that, because I think we're going to bring that out in just a moment. No, no, let's just... That would be a concern, because the first thing that hits me when you're saying that is, it depends. And... And who decides what's destructive? You have a standard. Yes, and who sets the standard? Christ. So Christ is setting the standard on women's ordination in this organization. No, but if you have someone that says... But wait a second, then, what's the standard? No, if you have someone that says, I like pork chops with my meal, and your standard is we are... We'll, okay, we'll get the pork chops. It actually comes out in the lesson. It actually comes out in the lesson. Let's, let's get there. Let's get there. Um, so, these, these are really excellent points. I'm glad you're bringing them because I really... And if you feel like we don't answer them, uh, before we get to the end, raise your hand and make us answer them, okay? Because I really want, I really, I, I want to get to that point. So this false view, though, that leads to ends justifying the mean, missing the forest for the trees... Um, where we then will pressure and coerce other people to conform because we have to keep the right rule, okay? They fail, and why do they do this? Because they fail to realize how reality actually works. You can't get love, loyalty, devotion, trust, friendship by threats for punishing people who don't love, who aren't loyal, who don't trust. You can't get it by doing that. So does this mean there's no relationship between doctrine, what is being taught, and salvation? Or is there a relationship between doctrine and salvation? What's the relationship? Cause and effect. Okay, reality. This is, the rea- this is it. There is a relationship, and the relationship is reality. So let me put it this way. Is there a relationship between doctrine teaching, okay, doctors historically in the past, taught patients with lung disease that they would have improved breathing if they smoked tobacco. Yes. They taught that. Their breathing and lungs would get better if they smoked tobacco. Was there a relationship between that teaching and their ultimate health outcomes? It was negative, but there was a relationship. Yes, there was a relationship. And what was that relationship? Reality. It got worse. And now, did there come a time when doctors realized that tobacco is actually a toxin? It actually undermines health. It causes lung disease and heart disease and lots of other problems. And then they began teaching people that it's not a medicinal. It's not helpful. There's no health benefits from it. In fact, it harms. It undermines health. Is there a relationship between teaching people this message about tobacco and health outcomes? Okay. So teaching somebody an idea, that's a doctrine. Is there a relation between doctrine and salvation? Another word for salvation is healing. Okay, There is a relationship. Wendell said it, cause and effect. And you can only identify these relationships when you understand design law. If you don't understand the laws of health, then you don't actually understand how to educate people to live in harmony with the laws of health. Yes? I think the other thing it emphasizes is that truth is a journey. And what we know and understand today maybe uh, further proved or disproved tomorrow and the next day. So on this journey that we invite all to join with uh, for seeking truth, it's not that we've arrived, it's that it's a journey of, of further seeking. No question about that. God is infinite. We're finite. How big is the gap? 
It's an infinite gap. So even in an eternal world in which all things are made new and there's no more sin in the universe, we still advance in our understanding of truth and reality. However, just because that's true, this is where we have to be critical reasoners, it's true we will never become infinite. We will never become God. We will never know all things. So there's always more truth to uncover and learn. Does that mean we can't know any truth now? Does that mean there are truths that we... that that we can't hold any truths today that are eternal truths and those truths won't actually change? Or are there truths we can hold today that will be true for all eternity? The character of God. The- right. And so, so, so don't confuse. People will, people will sometimes go, well, we're always growing, so whatever we understand today, uh, it could be thrown out tomorrow. Not on eternal truths. There are some truths, and those truths are the truths that are founded in God's character, in his design for reality. You know, Jesus said not one jot or tittle of his law, meaning his design protocols for life will change. If you understand those designs, they're eternal. They will not change. But the doctrines might. Uh, the doctrines, how we present them, the stories we tell about them, the meanings we derive from them, the purposes we understand for them, all those understandings may change, but the actual principles of reality don't change. So the relationship between doctrines and salvation in Jesus. What if we teach um, the truth about God, his character, methods, his designs for life? What's actually wrong with that sin is caused that God is fixing through Christ? Then the doctrines become effective if we teach it in that reality. But if it's taught in myth, it's distorted in some false way. Can the doctrines being taught in Christianity actually make people worse? Harden hearts, corrupt characters, move them away from God. Can that happen? Notice, so there's a relation between doctrine and salvation, and it is doctrines that help us understand the reality of who God is and how he's designed his universe and what is actually wrong that sin has caused and how God through Christ is fixing what's wrong. As we come to a clearer understanding of those realities, then those doctrines can, if accepted and applied, have healing benefit to people. So notice we're, we're moving away from, and I would tell you the, the doctrines need to be about methods and principles rather than about rule keeping. So methods and principles, you mentioned pork a moment ago. Methods and principles. Understanding the laws of health, we understand certain foods are not as healthy for the body as other foods. That's a principle. So the principle would be put in your body the things that will be healthiest for the body as you're able to comprehend and understand them. And there's certain guidance in Scripture about what those things might be. But we can also make rules about that. We don't understand the principles. We just have a rule. The rule says you don't eat pork. And you certainly don't eat human flesh. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember in the 70s a soccer team that went down in the Andes Mountains. And some of the people died in the crash, but some of the people didn't. And they were way above the tree line. And there was nothing there except snow. And somebody walked out, but it took, was it weeks, months? They were up there a long time. What did they eat? So in the principle here, what is the healthiest thing for them to do in that context? Starve to death or eat the protein that was available? It would be gross, wouldn't it? It would be disgusting. But what's the healthiest thing in that context? That's the healthiest principle. I could see, how about, if they, how about though if they actually had a dead pig up there? But there's a rule that we shouldn't eat pork. 
Perhaps, though, maybe they should have starved to death and hope ravens brought them bread. Good luck. Compare and contrast your rule statements with, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can love be commanded? I command you to love me. But it's a direct order from Christ, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's black and white. Yep. Yep. Can you command love? No. So then, then you have to think, when you hear those, back to the same principle, when you hear scripture, which law lens do you hear it through? If you love me, keep my commandments. And commandments are heard through the same thing that humans do, rules enacted by an authoritarian being of some sort. And therefore, these are the rules you must keep if you love me. That's level four thinking. If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? If you love me, when love's in your heart, you will not steal. You will not. So this is a description. It would be like saying... If you partake of this antibiotic, you will get well and you will stop coughing, you will stop having fever, okay? So when you go through the design law lens, yes, you will do these things, but not because it's a system of rules you have to keep. It's the outcome of the fruit that happens when you partake of Christ, when you love him. Love leads to this or results in this. So which law lens do you hear this through? And that's the key. And, what the, and, the, and the Satan's big lie is this idea that God's government and laws function no different than human beings make up, system of rules. And then the whole system is corrupt, and we live in fear of God, and we create theologies that are designed functionally to do what? Hide us or protect us from God. Think through all the theologies that you've been taught your whole life that have this as their function. This is what they do. When the Father looks at me, he can't see me because I'm covered with the robe of righteousness. I'm being hidden from the Father. I'm washed in the blood or covered by the blood or my records of sin are being erased by the blood. So when the Father examines me or looks at my record, but he can't see the record of sin. I have a mediator that stands between me and the Father and pleads to the Father, my blood, my blood, to turn away his anger and wrath, to propitiate him in some way. Think of all the doctrines we've been taught and they're functionally doing what? Working on God, hiding us from God, protecting us from God. Because why? We have been corrupted to believe that God is our enemy, that we need to be protected from him. But we call it justice. We call it holiness. He is so holy. He is so righteous. His, 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 his feelings get outraged when he sees sin. And he, he just, if it wasn't for Christ's blood, he would, he would break out in fiery wrath and destroy it. Because he, he hasn't got his anger management classes yet. It's not the truth of Scripture. It's a distortion. It's a corruption. And so people live in fear. And we need to come back to see design law that sin in the sinner corrupts and destroys the sinner. And God, through Christ, is working to restore us back into his image. Amen. Okay? So this idea of division, though, truth. So what is it that unites? Truth presented in love while leaving people free. These are principles. When those principles are accepted, there's unity that happens. When you accept those principles. Uh, you can disagree with somebody on a doctrine if you accept the principles of, hey, I think I'm right about this, this doctrine, this truth, this biblical teaching, this, this practice in Christianity. I think this is the right thing. But you know what? My principles are, I present it to you in the most loving way, and I leave you free. Then we can still be united because we love each other, and we don't need to pressure or coerce or reject each other because we don't see eye to eye on every point. By the way, in the early Adventist church, this is exactly how they practiced. They didn't see eye to eye on every point. Did you know many of the founding Adventists, Ellen White was not one of them. She was a Trinitarian. But many of the founding Adventists were Arians. They did not believe in the Trinity. Did you know that? And it wasn't a point to argue about. It's like, be persuaded in your own mind. It's okay. 
But but it's not okay in the organization today. No, you have a 28 fundamentals, and one of them is the 28 uh, is, the, is the Trinity. And in order to be officially employed, that and these were church employees, pastors, credentialed preachers that were Arians, uh, editors of our magazines that were Arians. Do you think that any of those Arians would be employed by our organization or uh, editors of our major publications today? No. No, it's a test, it's a test of, of fellowship at this point now. The term Arian, is it different than what it means today? Like one God versus three? So it comes, it comes back from, from the, uh, the time of Rome breaking down into the ten tribes. One of the tribes is an Arian tribe. And, the, and three of those tribes did not believe in Christ as the incarnate Son of God. They believed he was a created being. And so they rejected the Trinity. And those three were uprooted by the little horn and destroyed. So not, so. not Arian white supremacist no, Arian. No, no, no. No. Clear that up. Yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Okay. No, this goes back to those who don't believe in a trinity, who believe Christ was a created being. Okay, and three and three of the tribes of the ten tribes that Rome broke down into took that position, and they were ultimately de- defeated in combat with the Bishop of Rome. And that was about 538 A.D. when they finally were, were thrown over. I don't know where that stuff comes from. <laughs> So when we accept those methods, it brings unity. Even if we disagree on some of these points, that's the point I'm making here. But lies believed, when we believe lies, okay, it results in fear and selfishness, and then we ultimately have to, in fear, fear of apostasy, fear of the organization being corrupted, fear of people presenting the false thing. And, and so now we're, we're not living in love for others, we're living in fear of, of this. And so we have to now use coercive measures to make sure that we all comply. Now, I must say, though, while truth presented in love, leaving people for his methods, unites. When truth, I want you to get your mind around this. When truth is presented to a group of people who don't yet embrace and love the truth, they're still living in the world in lies and deceit and selfishness. When truth is presented to that group, truth divides. And this is what Christ meant when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to bring the sword of truth to cut selfishness out of the hearts of men. And to cut away ties that we have to people who are still practicing worldly methods and to establish our hearts in God. So the sword of truth is like a scalpel, cutting out pathology of our hearts. So when we're united with evil people and truth comes, that truth is designed to divide us and cut us out of that evil and establish us in righteousness. Let the dead yes. bury the dead. Yeah, let the dead bury the dead. So... What happens if we have a right doctrinal fact, say ceremonial baptism by immersion, and we can prove from the scripture that that's you know, what the word means, it means to immerse. And so we, we have this ceremonial baptism by immersion in water is the method, but then we, uh, is, is the method of baptism. But then to implement that in our organization or our country, we use coercive measures of force and force people to be ma- baptized. Would we now be promoting the truth? What about if, if uh, we teach people the biblical method of baptism by immersion, but we leave people free to decide for themselves? And a person is not convinced of baptism by immersion and instead is baptized by sprinkling. Does that person, does that belief preclude them from being saved? Because they're not convinced of immersion, they are convinced of sprinkling. Does that preclude them from being saved? Yes or no? No. Would baptism by sprinkling prevent someone from being part of God's church triumphant? 
would baptism by sprinkling prevent someone from being part of a denomination if they didn't get immersed? Hmm. So what does that say about the difference between denominations and the church triumphant? God looks at the heart. Well, we also accept profession of faith versus the actual... Only profession of faith for those who either are so physically handicapped they cannot survive going underwater, or if they've been immersed by some other organization. Yeah. Okay? So that's the only reason. Yeah. If they're capable of being immersed and they don't want to because they've been sprinkled, would that preclude organizational membership yes it would so what does it say but it doesn't include it doesn't preclude salvation and membership of god's church triumphant Hmm. if we have a message for the end of time that is to unite all the peoples from every nation kindred tribe and and country of the world if we have a message that we're to bring all people under one head jesus christ should that message be one that actually unites all people, or should we present factual truths in such a way that we cause more fracture and division? Did you see what I just did with the baptism? How you can present that in a way that it divides rather than unites? Sunday's lesson. The first paragraph says, like many other spiritual blessings, God gives his people church unity. Also, uh, go, excuse me. Didn't put the comma in the right place. Like so many other spiritual blessings, God gives his people Church unity also is a gift of God. Unity is not a human creation through our efforts, good works, or intentions. Fundamentally, Jesus Christ creates that unity through his death and resurrection. As we appropriate by faith his death and resurrection through baptism and forgiveness of our sins, as we join in common fellowship, and as we spread the three angels' messages to the world, we are in union with him and in unity with one another. What's being described in this paragraph? What's, what's the unity here being described? Are, are they saying that if we agree on the method of baptism, claim by faith the death of Jesus for the payment of our sins and the forgiveness of our sins, and believe he rose from the dead and share a common definition of what it means by the three angels' message, then we'll have unity? Sounds like what they're saying. I don't know. So is unity merely agreement of ideas? Or is unity a unity of hearts in love, who practice the same methods, but could potentially disagree on various ideas, but have unity. You know, if, if we understood correctly that baptism is more about immersing ourselves in God's character, there might be more unity. But instead, it's created, it, it's just a, a ritual that's done, and it's done in the name of. We miss the picture. That's right. So the baptism of water is a symbol, and you're saying what it's a symbol of. It's the reality. What's the reality? Immersing Immersing your heart, mind, and character in the character of God. That's the reality of what the symbol means. And if people are immersed in his character, then they practice his methods. They love others more than self. Uh, Fear no longer dominates their decision-making. They're willing to self-sacrifice for other people. They they have a heart that loves truth and wants to grow in truth. And when you have that, then you see... I can tell you guys, this message that we teach... We've traveled all over the world. And people who love this message, there's just a heart fellowship bond. There's a unity. It's there. There's no sense of judgmentalism or coercion or threat. It's okay for, for us to see things differently than somebody else. It's okay. I, I don't fear your different perspectives. It's okay. You might have a, an insight on an idea I never considered before. And if you disagree with me, what do I always do? Well, tell me why. What's the evidence for that? Let's explore it. 
Yeah. Isn't our educational systems set up like that, though, where you have your jocks, you have your mechanics, you have your different groups of uh, educated kids in a school that tend to cling to a, a certain perspective of people, and, and, and it's because they love what they love together in that kind of union? So you've described two different things for me. One is just the fellowship of common interests that I think is natural to human hearts. You know, birds of a feather flock together. People who love gardening will come together. People who love outdoor sports will come together. I think that common interest is... But then you mentioned education rather than just common fellowship. And the education piece, my experience, I was talking to somebody about this this week, is that much of our educational system, whether public or private, is really about teaching people what to think, not teaching people how to think. It's indoctrination on the left and the right. These are the schools of thought, or on the evolutionary world or the creation world. It's here's what you should think, not how did you come to those conclusions. How do you discern through the evidences? How do you weigh out the and come to what's most reasonable? What are the principles involved here? That's higher order thinking that we need to be teaching people. Hopefully we're, we're helping you guys as we teach from this class to do those things. It says in the, in the lesson, though, that unity is a gift from God, and it, and it doesn't come from um, any uh, efforts or good works or intentions from us. That's what it says in the lesson, right there in the paragraph. So... Let me ask you this question. Can a person be saved by their own efforts apart from God and apart from Jesus? No. No. Can God save a person through Jesus without the effort, cooperation, and active engagement of that person? No. Get your mind around that. This is often missed in Christianity. Um, There's another place where the false imperial law lens has corrupted the simple truth. Because the species human was saved by Jesus alone, and no work or effort or action we sinners can take can contribute in any way to what Jesus actually accomplished in his life, it's falsely taught that we have no work in salvation. Yes, he's quoting a scripture that I've got right here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because what they miss is they're, they're, they're looking at it through the legal view. And there's nothing you can do to the perfection that Jesus developed, which then is legally applied when he sacrificed his life and was punished in your place and all the sins were placed on him. In this view, then there's nothing you can do. You can't add to that. Well, that's, that's because they're trying to, under, again, stand it, understand it through the false law lens. The way you should conceptualize this is Jesus developed or procured or achieved the perfect remedy to the sin condition. And nothing you can do can add to that. It's like the doctor who developed penicillin or an antibiotic that will cure you. You didn't develop it. You didn't pay for it. It's given to you free. But do you still have a work to do to take it? To follow the instructions of the doctor? To engage in the treatment program? Just having the remedy doesn't do you any good if you don't partake. And so design law comes immediately back to understanding how that reality works. Jesus saved the human species in his own humanity. But every individual person can become a partaker of the divine nature, according to Peter. As we trust him, we can experience the indwelling spirit who takes the achievements of Christ and gives us new longings, new desires, and then we choose to say yes to that truth, yes to that desire. That's what I want to be like. We begin to act out and practice those things. And as we practice those things, we get divine power to empower us to do it because we don't have the power in our own energy. But the power doesn't come until we choose to do it. So let me read you a couple of quotes. 
see what you think. This is out of Mind, Character, Personality, second volume, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one, with one another and with God. The apostle says we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, God's building, 1 Corinthians 3.9. Man is to work with the facilities God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, God, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.12 and 13. And this is our high calling, page 310. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction. I love this next one. Get your mind around what's being said here. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. <laughs> what is often called blind faith. He does not dishonor the human understanding, but far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. And then one last quote, Desire of Ages 142. All who who seeks, excuse me, and he who seeks To give light to others will himself be blessed. There will be showers of blessing. He that waters will be watered also, Proverbs 11.25. God could have reached his objective in saving sinners without our aid. But in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. See, what law is being described in these quotes? There's a, a design law. You understand design law. What design law is being described? Two, at least two of them. Okay, three of them. As you open your heart to God and his character and his filling, I feel it is able to create healing in you that can't help but flow out to others. So that law of giving. So design law stuff, one, the law of giving. The more you give, the more you receive. Okay, If you have a, a, a garden hose on your house and you have a fire hydrant in front of your house and you open them both up full blast, which is giving away more water? The hydrant. The hydrant, which is receiving more water to it. God is the source of love. The water is a metaphor for love and truth. He's the source of infinite love, infinite truth. The more truth you share, the more love you share, the more you receive. You can't give it away until you receive it. And this is how it works. So the more you give, it's a law. And that is transforming to you. It transforms you as you process and understand and share the truth. So the law of love. Second law involved, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. As you study out the word and study out the truth and comprehend it and love it and adore it, you become changed by beholding. Your neurobiologic character lot, you become changed. And third, law of exertion. You want something to get stronger? You must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. And so we have to choose to activate our God-given faculties in harmony with God's presence and spirit, not singly, not alone, not devoid of God, but with him, exercising together with him. And that's why we're called to take the yoke of Christ upon us. And what does a yoke do? Yoke is not a bridle. It's not a bit. A yoke distributes the weight of the load. And we cannot win this battle in our own strength. We must be yoked together with Christ. Okay? And the yoke that yokes us together with Christ is love and truth. Our hearts are bonded to his when we come to the truth of him and and have a love relationship with him. That's the yoke that bonds us. I'm going to move on to Monday's lesson.
So it says in the lesson, let's just read Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, and we'll read it from the NIV. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Please explain that to me. Does that make perfect sense to you? Do you understand what it means? Let's ask some questions. First question, what does it mean? Who is far away and far away from what? Us far away from God. Okay, so us far away from God, and we could also, under the umbrella of being far away from God, far away from God's design, far away from God's character, far away from God's laws, far away from God's methods, far away from living in harmony with God's protocols. I mean, so we're, it's us who are far away from God. His design for life, his law of love, that's where we're far away from. What is meant by the blood of Christ? Does this mean red corpuscles? Life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. So it means the life of Christ. And the life of Christ is a metaphor, or the blood of Christ is a metaphor for the perfect character lived out, God's design laws lived again in the living being of Jesus who lived this out on earth. Perfect human character. How does the blood of Christ bring one close to God in God's design? Realizing love and action. So truth presented in love. Remember, by his death, it says in Hebrews 2.14, that by his death, he destroyed him, destroyed him holds the power of death that is the devil. So Christ's death destroys him holds the power of death. Now, power of death. Okay, John 17.3, life eternal. What's it say? John, come and quote the verse to me. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ is now sent. Right? So eternal life equals knowing God. Eternal death equals... Not knowing God. Satan has the power of death. He's the father of lies. So his power of death are the lies about God that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing God. Well, by Christ's death, he destroys him who holds the power of death that is the devil. What's he destroy? He destroys the lies about God that we've been believing. He wins us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth about what? What is it the truth? It's the truth ultimately about God, his characters, designs, his methods, how his law works, design law, creator law, stop this imperial legalistic thing that came in the dark ages, it came from the imperial dictators of Rome that infected Christianity. We reject that and we come back at this time in human history to worship him who created and his laws or design laws. And we see this in the, in the life of Christ. So the blood of Christ is both the truth and this perfect character lived out, which is the living truth. The law of God lived out. What are the two that are brought to, into one? We'll bring the two into one. Us in Christ. What is the barrier, the wall that's dividing? The darkness, the deception. What does it mean to abolish the law in his flesh? How does Christ create in himself a new human? And now, does, uh, how does this bring peace and peace with whom or what? That's what, the, that's what the text was saying. Yes, Wendell. 
in his life, he lived a perfect life, and when he said, Satan's coming, and there's nothing in me that is attracted to him. Right. And so Christ developed a perfect character, so he unified humans with God's design law. Well, he, what he was living followed perfectly what God was like. I love it. I love it. Uh, I'll share to you those same verses out of The Remedy. And for those who don't know, you can get The Remedy as a free app in your app store. You can download it if you'd like. This is, uh, this is from the same verses. It says, But now you, whose minds were once far away and who were practicing the principles of selfishness and survival of the fittest, have been enlightened and brought near to God and are in unity with Christ through the truth revealed when he died. For Christ himself is the remedy that heals the species and brings peace. He has removed fear and selfishness that causes division, mistrust, prejudice, and hostility. He did this by partaking of our human condition, and via the exercise of his human brain, he loved perfectly, thereby destroying in his flesh the humanity he partook, the selfish survival of the fittest drive along with the lies of Satan. In this way, he destroyed the need for the law, with all its regulations, to expose Satan's lies and methods. His purpose was to be the template of a new humanity born out of the unification of the two, our selfish infected condition merged with his sinless state, thereby purging selfishness from the human heart and transforming, healing, renewing, regenerating, and recreating humanity back into God's original ideal. And in this new being, to reconcile the human race, regardless of ethnic background, into loving unity with God and each other through the revelation of truth at the cross, by which he destroyed the lies of Satan, reestablished trust, and removed fear, selfishness, and hostility. Thoughts? The law of life, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set me free from the law of sin. That's right. In the law of sin and death, by the way, what Paul refers to the law of sin and death, that's survival of the fittest drive. That's the infection of fear and selfishness. Yes? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit says, against, these, against such there is no law. It means the same thing as the angels never even knew there was a law in heaven. Yes. They just naturally serve God out of... Adoration. And, and there's only one type of law that can be operational and not be thought of. So you can't have imposed rules that people abide by and are accountable to without informing them of them. But design law, people can be living them in the whole time and never even consider it. And I like the example of Isaac Newton when he finally decides to write down the law of gravity... And he describes the law of gravity, and you can imagine the people in the society going, wow, gravity? Huh, you mean there's a law about that? Never occurred to me there was a law about that. That's just how things work. Yes? Maybe there's not time for this, but um, the question is, so far we've dealt with personal, individual understanding of law, liberty, and how we relate to those laws. Organizationally, how do organizations relate to this law? Because that's largely what our criticism is of certain organizations and whatnot, and how they implement things. So what happens if a member of an organization holds a tenant that is divergent from, if someone here, in common reason, held that falsehood was important? I mean, that's bizarre, but I mean, you know. There's many people come to our class that hold views that are divergent from mine. I'm not talking about divergent. I'm talking about against the central tenets of that organization. And so what's the approach to that? 
when Lucifer took up a position that was against the central tenets of God's organization, what was God's method in dealing with that? Give it time, let it play out, because it becomes self-evident for all who are discerning what methods actually bring life and health and what methods don't. So as a doctor, you're over in some place, maybe people don't understand the facts, or maybe even today in, in America, and, and we see this happening. You have a new treatment, and this new treatment actually works. It transforms and heals. But the medical establishment says you're a quack. They don't accept it. What's the best way to handle that? Take your license and remove it from you? That's typically not what happens. It would only take a license if there's actually causal harm being done. There's no causal harm. Licenses are not taken. They leave many practitioners free to do things that the establishment doesn't actually accept because there's no evidence of any harm being done. And in fact, over time, if it's actually going to heal, eventually all those naysayers will come to accept because the evidence bears it out over time. That's the way God handles these things. What happens is organizationally, though, organizations become threatened. When Louis Pasteur came along with his germ theory, and he wasn't even a physician, how did the medical community handle that? They actually tried to imprison him. They tried to imprison him. They brought charges against him and tried to imprison him. Why? Why did they? Because they were threatened. They felt fearful. Their position, their authority. It was fear-driven. It wasn't, okay, Maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. Let's let it play out and see what happens. We don't have anything that can cure rabies. People get rabies and they come to us, they're going to die. Well, let him do it. He can't do worse than death, can he? But they didn't want to let him. So I think, now, and, and, and then you do take action, though, when the evidence demonstrates injury and harm. And some things are so evidentiary. So let's say we had in the uh, church, in the organized church, people who began promoting cigarette smoking as a way to get to heaven. The more packs you smoke, the closer you get to God. Okay, that's so evidence-based that if somebody was teaching that, they're delusional or some way. Or, and, and so you don't, first off, I don't think it would have any traction in the organization in the first place. But if it did have traction, then you would take action not against the person, but because you wouldn't want people to be harmed, and there's good evidence for it. But there are a lot of things that they, there's argument over or, or action from organizations about that they do that based on fear without evidence. I will tell you a true story. We're going to run over today, guys. I'm going to say right now, because I have another couple of things I want to get to, and you brought this issue up. A few years ago, um, when I was having a discussion about what we teach, and Russell can, tell, can testify this because he was at this meeting. Russell, myself, and one other individual went to meet with a group of pastors here in the local community who were uh, um, put off by what we teach in this organization. And one of the pastors said to me, and the reason he can't support what we teach is, this was his reason, I'm afraid that what you teach leads people out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I, my response was, remember this, Russell? Yeah, yeah, vividly. Yes. And so I said to him, I said, well, seriously, I said, thank you for your hypothesis, you, thank you for sharing that. You've developed a hypothesis that what I teach has a certain outcome. The outcome is people leave the Adventist church. Would you be willing to test that hypothesis? And then Russell gave a personal testimony about how he was raised in the Adventist church, went to the Adventist school systems, went to Loma Linda, and left the church. And it was hearing this message that he came back. And the other person that was with me said, well, I was raised in the church. Not only was I raised in the church, I graduated. I, I was an Adventist pastor, ordained. And I left the church. 
And this message brought me back. And so I said, you've got testimony of these people that I didn't know that you were going to ask this question or say this today. So you have a hypothesis. You have evidence of these two. I said, I would be happy to arrange a meeting with my class. I won't be there, so my influence will not influence. And you can have one-to-one interactions and discuss your concerns and see the feedback you have. Would you be willing to test your hypothesis? And his answer was, no, I just believe you lead people out of the church. (laughs) No, but this is the point, okay? He had a fear... Okay, based on a certain preconceived idea, because he has certain doctrines that he's defined at level four thinking. He was a level four thinker. We got these rules. It's the way it's supposed to be. If you don't teach it this way, and you, if you believe in the death of Christ and he's your, your savior, but you don't believe that he died to pay a legal penalty to his dad. Instead, you believe he died for what I just read to actually fix the, the sin problem and to provide remedy that heals and restores. If that's the reason, well, that's not the checkbox that we have in our list. And our checkbox in our list has to pay the legal penalty. So if you still believe he died for, for your sin and for your salvation, but you don't believe this reason, then you're no longer part of our organization. So you're leading people out of the defined system of thought. There's, there is another checkbox, and that is, are you helping the organization to continue its existence? That, that one didn't come up in that conversation. So, you see how design law understanding from that passage we read makes a huge difference. And, and the lesson asks us to read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And this is out of the NIV. And I'm going to make some comments as I read through this. Because you will notice how the Bible, if you, if you have the right lenses on, it's just, it's just so clear, the, the reality. So here we go. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 out of the NIV. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Pause. Is a new creation... Or do we believe the legal lie that says you're simply declared to be a new creation even though you're not? Hmm. Let's keep going. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Do we believe the Bible that, that he sent Christ to fix or restore what was broken in us to bring us back into harmony and unity with him, which is reconciling us to him? Or do you believe the legal lie that, that God was also changed by our sin and he had now anger and wrath that was righteous and holy? And not only do we have to be reconciled to God, but God has to be reconciled to us. That's taught in the legal view. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Do we believe what the Bible says here? Or do we accept the legal lie that teaches God does keep score, does keep records, does write down our sins, is counting them up, is examining the record books, and if you don't get the legal payment made, he will punish you for them? Or do you believe what the Bible says? He's not counting men's sins against them. Keep going with the quote. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now notice, this is, this is substitutionary theology. People accuse us of not teaching substitutionary theology because we deny that Christ died to pay a legal penalty for, to his dad. And because that's the only reason they can think of then I don't, believe in, I don't believe in the death of Christ. I don't believe in substitutionary atonement. I don't believe in the blood atonement. This is what they say. It'd be like saying, Christ did not have to die in order for textile manufacturers to learn how to dye wool. He did not have to die for that. That's a true statement. You know that, right? 
But that is not the same thing as saying he did not have to die for our salvation. When I say he did not have to die as a legal payment to his father, that is not the same thing as saying he did not have to die for our salvation. We could not be saved out the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was essential and required for human salvation. But it wasn't required for that purpose. That's a lie. It's part of the legal lie. Notice what the text said. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Substitution. He took our place, just like I read in the earlier text from Remedy. So that, here's the reason, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do we believe again the Bible that we become the righteousness of God? Or do you accept the penal substitutionary lie that says you are declared to be righteous even though you remain wicked? You don't become righteous. And how is it that we become by partaking, by trusting, by opening the heart, by choosing, by aligning. What do you, some of you may become uncomfortable with the implication I was making, but he, he doesn't, uh, um, doesn't count men's sins against them or keep a record of their wrongs. What's the same First Corinthians uh, 13? Love, it keeps no record of wrongs. Well, wait a second, man. You're really perverting scripture because we know there's record books in heaven. The court was seated and the books were opened. We know this to be true and you're, you're perverting and corrupting scripture here. Uh, no, the, the Bible's pretty clear. What's in those record books is not a legal record of your sins for God to account against you. You should conceive the record books much more simply than that. This whole idea is Satan's lie. It's all, again, on that imperial law. God's records are merely the records of reality. Like medical records, documenting the actual condition of each human heart, and also documenting the myriad interventions from God to heal every individual person. And also documenting, as the medical records do, all the many times any lost person rejected God's free remedy. Thus the records are not lists of our misdeeds for God to punish and destroy, but a record of all God has done to save each person, even those who are lost. That's what the records are. A record of reality that God is saving and reaching everyone. Anyone who's only lost or only lost because of their rejection of that reality. And those records there are because we'll have questions and he wants us to be able to understand. Mm-hmm. We'll have to jump ahead. A couple, just a couple of really, I think, fun quotes here. about This is in Wednesday's lesson, the second paragraph. And it talks about the pork question in this day. So this, we're getting to your pork question here. Okay. It says, it's very likely that these matters had to do with Jewish, talking about uh, Romans chapter 14, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And it says, it's very likely these matters had to do with Jewish ceremonial impurity. According to Paul, these were disputes over doubtful things, indicating that they were not matters of salvation, but matters of opinion that should have been left uh, up to the individual's uh, consciences. You notice what they're trying to do here. They're trying to suggest, well, there are matters of opinion, and those matters you should just leave people free. But there are other matters called matters of salvation, and those are not left free for you to come to your own opinion on. Well, let me ask you this question. Is accepting Jesus as your Savior a salvation issue? Should every person be fully persuaded in their mind about that? So this Romans 14, Paul's principle, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, applies to all issues. Not these, and they're trying to divide because they're level four. And it's real important that we actually have thought police and we, and we, and we all have to define things the same way and we have to discipline people. No, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind on every issue. Why? Because a person convinced against their will 
The only way that truth has a transforming power on an individual is for them to be persuaded in their own mind. Okay? Worse than that, when you accept this legal lie, this compliance lie, this authoritarian view, this idea that, oh, there are certain salvation truths we don't want to leave people free to make up their own mind on, no, 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 then what happens is we begin using coercive measures which violates one of God's design laws called the law of liberty, and when you violate that law, predictable consequences come, and those predictable consequences are rebellion, Love dies. Or destruction of love and the destruction of individuality. You become these empty, shadow, thoughtless people. And so here's a brilliant uh, comment, insight, out of Christ's Object Lessons, page uh, 97. A profession of faith and the possession of truth in the soul are two different things. The mere knowledge of truth is not enough. We may possess this, but the tenor of our thoughts may not be changed. The heart must be converted and sanctified. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so, the law says it, if we don't, we'll get punished. It's a requirement. Obey those commandments. will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. This is penal substitution theology. Keeping the rules because the rules say so. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across the human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness and the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. Can you get loyalty by threatening to punish people who are not loyal? But the all-righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. And this is why Satan loves the penal substitutionary view, because if he teaches people that God is the source of pain and suffering and he'll punish you if you're not loyal to him, it undermines your ability to be loyal to him. This will lead us to do right because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. And I think we'll read one more. Signs of the Times, uh, July 22, 1897. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one... Service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in love and in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmuring, murmurings and complaints. And I could go on. We, we don't have time. I could expand on that and how that works out. But understand, what's being described here are principles of how reality works. And at this time in human history, God is calling for a people to come back and and give the eternal good news, the good news about who God is, his character, how he's constructed reality to work, to, to break away from this imperial legal thing and start presenting our designer and creator and how all the doctrines rightly understood enlighten us in some way about his good character. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing, beautiful being of truth and love and infinite source of righteousness. And we ask that your spirit of truth will come, enlighten our minds, transform our characters, enable us and empower us to to be your light at this time in human history, to be able to tell this message, to cut through the distortions and the lies, to break down the gates of hell that are holding so many minds captive so that the light of heaven can shine in and lives can be changed and we can see you soon. Your holy name, amen.